This is In the Arena, the Colorado Concern podcast that explores the intersection of business and politics. I'm your host, Mike Kopp. Everyone is increasingly aware of the cyber threats that companies in the United States face. Recently, there was an attack on JBS, a big ag producer in Greeley. Uh, everybody knows about the attack on the Colonial Pipeline, but there have been other attacks uh, in Colorado, including uh, against the Department of Transportation. It was a real treat, a real pleasure to catch up with Chad Wolf, who is the founder and president of Wolf Global Advisors. And listeners uh, probably would know him as the former acting secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration. And we wanted to ask him about cyber threats facing the United States, what the federal government is doing, uh, perhaps maybe what they should be doing. We also talked a little bit about the border and visa policy, all these things that really touch upon business. I hope you enjoy. Well, Chad, thanks so much for joining us. You've described DHS in somewhat surprising ways, I think, to many people in business in the sense that I think people look at the cyber landscape, or you've called it a cyber battlefield, uh, I believe. And I I think uh, people are surprised to hear that DHS is so heavily involved in that. I, we know that uh, most people think of FBI or other agencies. Could you reflect back a little bit on your time at DHS and, and give us a little bit of a perspective from a business standpoint of of what uh, the United States government is dealing with uh, in general and what uh, DHS is, how DHS is responding in particular to these, to this growing cyber threat that we all face. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's a great question. It's a, it's a big question, certainly. I think what you've seen over the last several years and particularly in the last probably four or five months is a growing increase of cybersecurity events and, and particularly ransomware events. We saw that particularly with Colonial Pipeline and uh, with JBS and the, and the food ag industry. And so we continue to see these, um, and there is a whole-of-government approach to uh, addressing the issue. And part of that, as you mentioned, is certainly on the law enforcement side, uh, which is where the FBI comes involved um, in trying to make sure that uh, they are identifying these cyber criminals and, and trying to hold them accountable, uh, a variety of different ways that they do that. But there's other elements involved as well, as well as uh, such as the intelligence community. A lot of these uh, either non-state actors or state actors you know, originate overseas. Um, and so the intelligence community collects a lot of intelligence about some of our adversaries. And then you have the Department of Defense. Uh, they have Cyber Command, uh, where they are, are focused on uh, fighting, you know, fighting our, our wars uh, in the cyberspace. And so they take much more, both a, both a defensive, but also an offensive um, uh, approach, along with the National Security Agency, or NSA, where the Department of Homeland Security gets involved is more on the civilian side, making sure that we're not only protecting federal networks, but also protecting critical infrastructure. And that not only occurs in cyberspace, but also in physical space as well. And so how do we do that? We have to make sure that we have relationships, or I should say the department needs to make sure that it has relationships with critical infrastructure uh, owners and operators. We know about 75 to 80 percent of the, of critical infrastructure in the U.S. is privately owned. And so we need to be talking to them. Uh, DHS is the conduit to which a lot of those conversations occur 
particularly before any bad event happens. So we're continuously trying to build resiliency into the system, making sure they're thinking about cybersecurity, uh, taking protective measures and the like. And so that conversation occurs with the private sector and with DHS, which is, again, a civilian agency, uh, which most folks are more more comfortable talking to. So DHS has been in the, in the cybersecurity uh, space for some time. In 2018, I believe, we created the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within the department. And its sole focus, again, is to make sure that it's um, talking to the private sector, protecting federal networks, and protecting critical infrastructure, which includes uh, privately owned and operated infrastructure. So uh, it's something the, the mission that we've been doing or that the department's been doing for some time uh, that they'll continue. And I think the, the recent uh, increase that we've seen uh, in ransomware attacks just further increases uh, their mission and the, the criticality of that mission. Could you break out the differences for us between uh, like the solar winds attack uh, of last year, late last year, and these more recent attacks that have garnered a lot of national attention with JBS, uh, Colorado company, and um, and also uh, the Colonial folks down in the southeast part of the United States. What are the similarities and what are the differences between these attacks? So when you look at, at cyber events or um, sort of uh, penetrations, you've got to look at uh, the actor itself. And we usually see those actors in, in one of two buckets, either they're a nation state or they are um, a non-state actor. Uh, and even a non-state actor can have various levels of um, acknowledgement by a nation state. But let's just say there are state and non-state actors. What you saw with SolarWinds was, um, was a state actor, uh, essentially. Um, and what you see with, which was more involved in um, try espionage, trying to obtain sensitive and critical information uh, to make further decisions on. Uh, to our knowledge, during SolarWinds, they gained access, but they didn't gain access to do anything specific with that access. They gained the access to steal the information uh, for espionage purposes. When you look at um, Colonial Pipeline or even JBS, that's more uh, cyber criminals. These are non-state actors that are interested in a payment. They are interested in making money at the end of the day. Uh, and what they do is they go into these systems, they compromise the systems, and then they hold those systems for ransom. So if a company wants to get access back to their network uh, so they can continue to operate their business. Uh, these criminals make them play a fee in, in many cases, and in, certainly in the solar winds, multi-million dollar fee or ransom uh, to get access back to their systems. Um, and so you've got two different things at play. Solar winds wasn't ransomware. It was just access. Uh, both are equally dangerous. Uh, but there are different motives uh, behind each. And it really depends on the, uh, the the attack and who the adversary is and what's their purpose. So trying to understand that is a little bit about what the federal government provides. Um, again, through the intelligence community, FBI, law enforcement, we have a good idea of a lot of these different actors, even the non-state actors. And so trying to understand their motives helps helps to address the situation at the end of the day seems like there's an incredible amount of evolution in this whole area, both as it relates to how private companies can protect themselves and how private companies 
need to respond to these attacks. I'd be curious to know just in that bucket, if there are a cluster of best practices that you would recommend. And then in the other big bucket, um, the, uh, there, there must be incredible evolution going on in the public policy space. How, how does a country keep its infrastructure safe? How does it keep its uh, private companies safe? Um, you know, at what point, at what point does an attack on a private company become really more of a national, uh, a national interest? I, I don't know if there's a dividing line. Maybe you could speak to that. But um, could you could you provide a little bit of context for us yeah. uh, as it relates to um, just the evolution, so we can kind of see where we've come from and yeah. maybe where we're going a little bit. Well, sure. I think over the, uh, you know, if you were to back up five or six years ago, you'd still see ransomware attacks and, and ransomware attacks are pretty common, um, but they usually are associated with sort of uh, mid-sized businesses. You're looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars paid in ransom um, to get those networks back. That's different than what we've seen here recently with uh, uh, Colonial Pipeline and JBS and, and others, where you're talking about multi-million dollar ransoms. And so the number of ransomware attacks has increased exponentially over the past several years, up three, 400% over last year. Um, but you're also seeing these cyber criminals uh, targeting larger and larger companies. Uh, and these larger and larger companies own and operate critical infrastructure, which we talked about earlier, which if you're going to hold their system for ransom and it, it, it disrupts that system, it's not just disrupting one company and uh, potentially their bottom line, but it's also having a, a systemic um, economic impact across the country. And I think that's where we're at today. And I think that's where there's a recognition that it's no longer just solely up to the private sector to address these types of uh, incidents and ransomware attacks, but that the federal government is going to have to take a more proactive approach going forward. And I think that's what we've seen out of the Biden administration. They were able to recover some uh, cryptocurrency uh, paid um, to the, in the Colonial Pipeline case, uh, and I think that's a good step forward. Uh, but we need to see what else can be done utilizing all the different level, levers that the federal government has from civilian to intelligence to military, making sure that we impose consequences we, that, that we both attribute who's doing these attacks and then that we impose consequences to them. Because otherwise, we're going to continue to see a, a proliferation of these types of attacks. So when we look at what companies can do, um, I would encourage most of them to uh, certainly make sure they become familiar with our cybersecurity uh, and infrastructure security agency, or CISA. Uh, it's a pretty descriptive website that they have. They offer a number of free services, no-fee services, such as vulnerability assessments, penetration testing, that a company that you know wants to understand what is their, uh, their cyber risk uh, can uh, engage with CISA at a relatively no cost or, or very, very low cost, and then can decide at, you know, after they get sort of a baseline security assessment, do they need some additional help? Do they want to contract with private sector entities to help them secure their networks on the front end? And so I think that's critically important. I think most companies, whether you're a, a Fortune 100 company or whether you're a, a medium-sized company, um, these criminals don't don't care. Uh, they're after money, and they're after uh, access. And so you can. I think it's worth the investment now uh, 
uh, versus on the back end uh, when we're, you're looking at a multi-million dollar ransom, uh, perhaps for your system. So there's a lot of different things that, that companies can do. And then legislation, uh, to answer your last question, I think Congress uh, is going to take a, a more active approach as we look ahead in the near future on what more can be done, not only providing the federal government resources, but also what can be done with the private sector. How can we incentivize the private sector to invest in cybersecurity measures or perhaps not pay ransom uh, to cyber criminals, thereby um, continuing that cycle of, uh, of criminal activity? These are not easy questions to answer, otherwise they would have been solved by now. But um, these are things that I think um, you know, Congress will be uh, really grappling with over the next couple of years. And, and as you know, my personal opinion is, we really, as a federal government, need to get aggressive uh, with these cyber criminals, making it so painful for them uh, if they want to attack large businesses, critical infrastructure here in the U.S., to make that so painful that it it's a uh, significant uh, disincentive for them to do that. We had an earlier discussion today and you were mentioning that the, dif- the different agencies, depending on what the mission of the agency is, uh, whether it's FBI or one of the intelligence agencies um, or Department of Homeland Security, you, you really have different missions. So you're looking at yeah. uh, you're looking at the crime of cybersecurity from a different from a different angle and from a, a business standpoint, I, I have to think that a lot of people in America would feel really good about these actors that are, you know, penetrating um, the companies, uh, private companies systems here in the United States, like for them to be fully exposed and, you know, yeah. kind of uh, prosecuted in the, in the light of day through whatever means might be available. I'm not even sure what those would be if they'd be in another country, but other agencies might prefer to keep that more more quiet uh, for operational reasons. Um, is, is that just going to be a tension that we that just will persist going forward? Is it is it even um, is it is it a good tension in your opinion to have that, or is it is it negative one way or another? Or what's your view about that? Yeah, well, I think we need to share more information. I say we, the federal government, needs to share more information uh, with the American people about. Uh, how we are combating this. I think you're right. I think we've, federal governments look at this more as an intelligence issue, is if we are going to identify these bad actors and and take offensive operations against them, then we don't need to really talk about that, right? And that's just sort of a, that's the mentality of, of the intelligence community at large for a variety of work that they do. Um, I think that needs to change over time. I'm not saying you can do that overnight. Um, but the American people need to understand that their federal government is is trying to actively address these issues. And whether it's DHS, whether it's the FBI, Cyber Command, National Security Agency, you have dedicated teams. This is all they do day in and day out, night after night, is uh, trying to uh, prevent on the front end, uh, protect during and then um, and then uh, and then build back or, you know, the resiliency in the system. Uh, and then prosecute from a, a FBI uh, perspective. So there's a lot of work going on, but I do agree with you. We need to talk more publicly about it because I think the American people, what they see is a lot of attacks, uh, a lot of news coverage around those attacks. What they don't see is all the positive things that uh, the federal government's doing and has been doing for a number of years. Uh, 
they're just not very good about talking about it. Well, that is encouraging. Uh, that, that is encouraging to hear because you you kind of get the. I, I think it's easy to get the impression. Well, we're all just sort of sitting ducks here, and you know, is our government really being aggressive about this? It's it's heartening to hear that. Um, you have you in your career at DHS. You had just a, an incredibly complicated job. So as if as if this one area is not complex enough. Um, you also dealt with the border, and we're a business organization. So Colorado Concern is really focused on a strong, vibrant business economy in the state. Um, would you comment a little bit about, I guess, your view of, of of what is taking place at the border, and give it, you know, maybe give it a look back of a year, and maybe you could project forward a year, and if you could put that in the context of how it how it has economic or, or business impacts. Um, I think that would be really interesting. Well, sure. I think, uh, you know, a stable, a stable economy, a uh, stable region obviously is good for business. Um, it's good for businesses to not only invest, but to grow in and to have that stability, you need um, the rule of law to be fairly effective. Uh, you need to, you know, hold people accountable when they break the law and the like. And I think, you know, you only have to look towards certain cities that we've seen over the last year, year and a half, a place like Portland, who continues to have problems for a variety of different reasons. But you see businesses leaving, you see that downtown boarded up. And it's not just because it's, you know, one month out of the year, it's every day, uh, day after day, you know, for the last year or so. That's not good for business, because, in my opinion, the rule of law is not being enforced there. And so they're, and what that encourages at the end of the day, it encourages, you know, folks that perhaps want to do bad things, criminals, violent opportunists, and, and others that want to take advantage of a, of a lax law enforcement environment to do certain things. And I think that's had a negative effect. You can also see the parallel of what's going on at the border today in the same vein is a lot of those border communities, and, and I would say even states, but even communities around the country are are hurting today because of a unregulated um, influx of individuals that have uh, come into the country, overwhelmed the system, overwhelmed our capacity to deal with them for a variety of different reasons. And I think that's having a, a detrimental effect on on the economy and on those communities itself. You need to make sure that um, you know, we have a very strong economy. A lot of folks want to come to the U.S., which I appreciate. We need to find legal pathways to bring them in. Um, we need a labor force here in the U.S., uh, whether that's a seasonal labor force or if it's an annual labor force. We need to make sure that we can bring these folks in, but to do it in a legal way so that we understand who they are. We can vet them. We can screen them. We can make sure that they adhere to their visa requirements. Again, back to the rule of law. I think if you provide some predictability, um, then businesses can can grow and they can prosper not only along that border but everywhere else where we're seeing a, a significant impact of what's going on in the border is touching a lot of different communities around the country today. Well, I'd like to end on a really positive note here uh, as the director of a very large agency with with a lot of moving parts and a lot of missions. Uh, one of those is to help people. Uh, come to the United States legally. We have lots of systems and, you know, employers are always looking for talent and that's, you know, that's, that's a discussion that has gone on for years and years and years. 
Um, as it relates to the policy that the United States has that that they, in effect, gave you as director to uh, follow, um, what is working well? What, what works well in our visa process? Uh, do you have recommendations for making improvements to, to get people that are are qualified to be here and, and, and have great talent to bring to the United States? Yeah, you know, look, I think we've got, at last count, I think there were between 70 and 80 different visa uh, programs that individuals can come here to the U.S. on, whether it's to work, to live, to visit, uh, and the like. And so there's a lot of different programs. A lot of them have been abused over time, and we see a lot of fraud in a lot of those programs. So I think, first and foremost, it's important that you know, the laws that Congress passed that established those programs, that they be administered um, as they were intended to be so that they are, are regulated uh, as such. I think that will help drive what, what changes need to be made. It's very hard to make changes. And I think most people realize that we need to make sure that we continue to bring in folks that can contribute to the U.S. economy. We want to make sure that we do that in a legal way. But it's hard to determine how to bring those individuals in on which programs when a lot of these are being uh, abused for a variety of different reasons. So I think there is some, um, some some reform that needs to occur. And then we need Congress to do their job. We need Congress who sets visa policy and then the executive branch just executes that. They need to have a debate and they need to have a discussion about high-skilled um, you know, foreign workers. What does that look like? Um, what are the requirements? You know, there's some very low bar requirements today that some would argue are driving Americans out of the workforce and out of certain uh, uh, industries. I think that that's a discussion that needs to have uh, happen. A lot of these programs were created 25 years ago. Visa programs were created 25 years ago. The economy's changed. The world's changed. And we need to have that debate in, in a rational way. And I think that that's what will help at the end of the day. But what we what we know is we need to continue to attract the best and the brightest to come here to the U.S. Uh, we need to make sure that if they come here to be educated, then they have an opportunity to stay and to contribute. And I think that's important. While the same that's on the high school side, on the same on the same vein, on the low skill side, we know that we need a labor force that um, is is mostly foreign based. Uh, and these folks want to come in, they want to contribute, they want to send money back home, and uh, we need to allow them to do that in a lawful way, uh, making sure that they adhere to their visa requirements, they go back home when they need to go back home, they come and they go, and they're vetted. Uh, if we can do that in legal pathways, I think you know we'll be stronger as a country at the end of the day. Well, Mr. Wolf, it's been really terrific to have you. I want to say uh, thank you uh, for your service to the United States of America. Thank you for your time today. Um, you are now back in the private sector as uh, the founder and the head of Wolf Global Advisors. Uh, is there a way people can find out about your work uh, that you could mention to us on our way out? Yeah, absolutely. It can go to the website. It's probably the best way. So it's www.wolfglobaladvisors.com. Uh, there's contact information on that uh, on that website for myself as well as others. They can read a little bit about the services we offer, uh, and just reach out. There's an email there, and they can uh, they can find me there. Well, thanks again. It's been it's been okay. wonderful to have you today. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the In the Arena podcast with Colorado Concern. I hope you'll subscribe so you can stay informed on the intersection of business and politics in Colorado. 